Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, it's Lindsey Chervinsky and Clay Jenkinson sharing their view of the top 10 historical events in American history. You know, David, we've done this series on 10 things around Jefferson in the early national period. We thought at year's end it would be interesting to talk about 10 great pivotal moments in the history of this country and to a certain degree, the history of the world. And I'm so interested in the ways that Lindsay and I will agree and disagree about this subject. Well, the top two on your list are Neil Armstrong landing on the moon and the coming of the internet. One of the great moments in the history of the planet when humans first left the Earth's gravitational force and stepped foot on another orb in our solar system. And the internet has changed us all forever. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss historical events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, historians look at events in history and gauge their success and their failures. I'm wondering, sir, if you look at your period of history, particularly the Revolutionary War period, what would you consider the greatest successes and the greatest failures, sir? Well, the great success is that we did, in fact, gain our independence from Great Britain. It was, I suppose, inevitable that this would happen at some point, but we did it in the summer of 1776 and vindicated it through a hard and difficult war which ended in 1783. Uh, the Declaration of Independence will probably be remembered in history as one of the most important documents, not because I wrote it, anybody could have done that, but because it spells out in very clear English that humans are born with rights. They're not granted by government or even God. Humans are born with rights, and they have a duty to protect those rights, including by overthrowing a tyrannical and oppressive government if necessary. So that, I think, will be regarded as one of the pivotal moments in the history of humankind, and I feel a great sense of pride that I was able to play a small role in getting that document into the world. And, sir, what about the failures or perhaps your disappointments from that era? Well, late in my life, when the Missouri Compromise occurred, which brought one new state in slave and one new state in free and established a sort of quid pro quo or tit-for-tat uh, approach to the future. I despaired of our republic, I think, for the first time. And I said, now an artificial boundary on one side, uh, one economy, on the other side, another, one side free, one side enslaved. This boundary line is sure to grow firmer will probably pull the republic apart, could lead to civil conflagration. I said, I, I'm saddened that I live to see this because I have always believed that humans coming together can solve their problems peacefully, and it no longer appeared to me that that would necessarily be the case. Certainly, sir, uh, I would agree with you. The, the Declaration of Independence was one of the benchmarks in American history. Uh, when I ask you about disappointments, I... I thought perhaps you would go to the Constitutional Convention and talk about the Bill of Rights. Well, I do take some credit 
for persuading Mr. Madison that a Bill of Rights was absolutely essential. As you know, the Founding Fathers in Philadelphia, the 55 demigods, as I called them, left that process without creating a Bill of Rights. When I read the draft in Paris, I was alarmed and angry, really. And I wrote to Madison saying that a Bill of Rights was essential to any acceptance of the new Constitution. And not alone, uh, there was a widespread anti-federalist feeling that insisted upon a Bill of Rights um, to make the, the Constitution even minimally palatable to the mass of Americans. But that was a disappointment, but we rectified it. We rectified it almost immediately, and I think the Bill of Rights is one of the world's great documents. I'm not certain, sir, that citizens of my time understand how much the Bill of Rights has affected them. They may take it for granted. They shouldn't. Think of the First Amendment. Freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of conscience, freedom to petition and to remonstrate for redress of grievances. A guarantee in this our happy republic. Think of the Fifth Amendment that allows people to, to refuse to say things in a court of law that might incriminate themselves. People who don't understand juries or jurisprudence or the machinations of the law know the Fifth Amendment. They know how to plead the Fifth. We also have the guarantee under the Ninth Amendment to substantial privacy rights and under the Tenth to keep our government split between state and national sovereignty. So even if people don't know what they have in the Bill of Rights, it protects them. And I would urge everybody to become aware of each of the ten and to be able to cite cases which show the vindication of a Bill of Rights for a free people. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. I remind everyone that the Bill of Rights is a more important document than the Constitution of the United States. citizens and welcome to this week's episode we are so pleased to be joined once again in this first show of 2023 by Lindsay Chervinsky I'm your host David Swenson also here of course is the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour Mr. Clay Jenkinson and I was so excited when the two of you agreed to do this program and I need to do just a short setup we got an email from Bridget Brandt Bridget lives in Grinnell, Iowa, and she writes, Behind reading and writing and math, the most important subject, I believe, is history, especially the history of our nation and its relation to the rest of the world. She listens, she says, to our podcasts all the time as she walked a thousand miles during the pandemic and says she was enlightened every day. But her question, and I presented it to, these, to the two of you several shows back, and you said, oh, we've got to do that, was what are the 10 most important American historical events of people or places that all students should know before they graduate from high school? Again, that's from Bridget Brandt in Grinnell, Iowa. And the two of you both said, oh, we must do this program. Uh, so today I got lists from the both of you of your 10 top um, historical events. 
I, I almost have to say this is probably going to be the top 20 historical <laughs> events, as I don't think either one of you duplicated. Um, really? No, I don't think you did. And having said that, I, I'd kind of like to get an agreement that we we do make this the top 20. We leave this open-ended. And if I, if I was a pushy good host, I would say, no, no, move it along, move it along. But I don't want to do that. I, I, You know, if this spills into another episode, I'm hoping that both of you will agree that that's okay. And with that, could I get the both of you to just quickly read your list and then we'll get into them. And Lindsay, would you start? Sure. I'm so excited we didn't duplicate. This is going to be such fun. So I tried to come up with a, a a combination of events that people probably had heard of and maybe ones that they didn't know quite as well. So just as a little bit of background. So here's my 10 list. The Great Treaty of 1722, the Constitutional Convention, but in particular, the September 24th, 1787 letter from George Washington to Benjamin Harrison, the Monroe Doctrine, uh, the Civil War, of course, but I would, I would in particular focus on the 14th Amendment, the Colfax Massacre of 1873, the Panama Canal, the creation of the Panama Canal, uh, the Civil Rights Movement, in particular the Selma to Montgomery March in 1965, the fall of the Berlin Wall, September 11th, 2001, and January 6th, 2021. Very good. And Clay, would you share your list with us? It is true. We uh, we overlap in a very slight way. So and I think my, our methodologies were slightly different, but I wanted to keep it open this way. So just to see what happens when two historians have to do this impossible thing, which is to pick out just 10 uh, moments. And I tried to keep it uh, specifically on American history. So my number one is Neil Armstrong steps foot on the moon, July 21st, 1969. And these are in no particular order, by the way. And I don't think yours were either, Lindsay. Mine were chronological. Right. Number two for me, the coming of the internet, 1983, uh, but more personally, 1985, when we all started to use the internet. July 4th, 1776, uh, the pivotal moment, I think, in the history of human liberty. Uh, number four, Richard Nixon turning over the tapes voluntarily, ex uh, accepting the, the ruling of the Supreme Court on August 5th, 1974. Uh, number five, New York Times wins uh, the case at the Supreme Court over the, the publishing of the Pentagon Papers in uh, June of 1971. Number six, it's a combo. Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896, and Dred Scott, 1857. Uh, two of the saddest moments in the history of this country when we ducked our capacity to really take racial justice seriously. Number seven, August 9th, 1945, Nagasaki, not August 6th but August 9th, the second detonation of an atomic weapon in Japan, just three days after the first. Number eight, the Battle of New Orleans, uh, January 8th, 1815. Uh, number nine, June 13th, 1979, when the U.S. Court of Claims sided with the Lakota and the Cheyenne that the Black Hills had been illegally taken from them and that they deserved to be heavily compensated. And finally, number 10, 1960, the Food and Drug Administration approves uh, the dissemination of birth control pills. Uh, this is a very interesting list. Um, it would seem, Lindsay, that you're uh, you kind of took history, like you said, uh, chronologically, 
and play yours are a, a bit more contemporary. Not in all cases, but again, I'm going to suspend the rules. Uh, uh, being a pushy host, I don't. If this could go three episodes, because I'm just excited to hear the both of you talk about it. I would propose that we begin with Lindsay, and that you present these items in any way you want. I will be the scorekeeper and mark off the ones that you've discussed, uh, if that's agreeable to the two of you. I think we should do a few of them, like five, and then back and forth. Otherwise, I know that I would, if I did my 10, it would take the rest of the hour, and I, I think <clears throat> we should try to discipline ourselves. And Perhaps more than an hour. So, Lindsay, you go ahead and start. So, my strategy, I wanted to try and cover what I felt like was the scope of the American story. Um, I was trying to pick sort of a a, what's the word I'm looking for, chronological distribution. And I wanted events that I felt like were major turning points in either what the nation would become or things that were forgotten or uh, moments that had impact far after they were anticipated. So starting with the Great, 20, the Great Treaty of 1722, there is a fantastic story in the New York Times by a historian named Nicole Eustace um, about this treaty. It is the longest lasting treaty that the United States recognizes. So it's the first one on the books. Of course, it was signed before the creation of the United States. And it recognized native sovereignty. It recognized restorative justice. There's a, I mean, not a great, but a very fascinating murder case that actually sparked off this case. And I picked this moment because I wanted something that represented the contested, complicated, uh, evolving relationship between Native nations and colonists at the very beginning. I didn't want to pl pick Plymouth and I didn't want to pick Thanksgiving or the even the true story of Thanksgiving or Jamestown. And I liked this one because it demonstrates the real power that Native nations actually held in the 18th century and up in some places long up into the 19th century. So that was my pick for the first one. I think most people probably don't know about that one. And so that was one of my surprises. And who were the treaty signatories? So the treaty signatories were the British empire um, in particular, the colonies of New York, Virginia, and Pennsylvania, and then the five nations of the Iroquois. What had happened were there were two English brothers and one of them had killed a Iroquois man and rather than, and was found guilty and rather than the death penalty, which would have been the punishment under colonial law, the native nations asked for restorative justice, which did not include the death penalty. And so the treaty both affirmed the land boundaries. It helped keep peace between settlers in the Iroquois nations, but it also was this first time that this concept of a different form of justice was recognized under colonial law. And so you said that treaty continues to be in force? It is still recognized by the United States today. It is the longest lasting one. Let's move on to you, Clay. What would you bring up first? Well, I'll go straight to that subject. So I came sort of at the other end of our national chronology. But, uh, David, you know this one as well as I. I was in Minneapolis uh, where the trial occurred uh, when the Lakota and Cheyenne sued the U.S. government because of the violations of the 1868 treaty and the uh, illegal appropriation of the Black Hills by the government of the United States. And the natives won. The Lakota and the Cheyenne won. 
Uh, I think the judge said that they were entitled to $17 million in compensation. What's so amazing about this story, Lindsay, is that they refused to accept it. They said money means nothing in this context. Money comes and goes. You spend money, but the land is forever. We never ceded this land. You stole it. This has now been vindicated by U.S. law. We want the land back. And so that uh, there was an impasse. And so the money has been sitting there gaining uh, interest. And now it's billions of dollars, not $17 million. And it'll, at some point, it'll be a gazillion dollars. And the Lakota have said, and the Cheyenne too, never, never. We're never going to accept a cash settlement. Give us back some of, and if possible, all of the Black Hills. And so this is why I love this country, that that's an unpalatable political proposition. You could never get the people of South Dakota to do that in a plebiscite. It was hard enough to get them to change the name of Harney Peak to Black Elk Peak. But the U.S. court system is the most independent branch of our government, and it has, over time, Lindsay, dealt substantial justice to people who couldn't get a hearing in other ways. And this was, I think, one of the supreme moments of my lifetime. But, David, you're, you're well aware of this story. Yes, and it, it, it's uh, it's an ongoing story, and I I, I have my doubts that it will be uh, settled during my lifetime. Lindsay, what's your next one on the list? I'm going to jump around a little bit. So I'm going to go to my number eight, which was the fall of the Berlin Wall. This is, of course, not in theory an American event, but the fall of the Berlin Wall signified the beginning of, or at least the the visual representation of the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was the end of this two-polar system that had dominated much of the second half of the 20th century, and it really left the United States standing as the sole remaining superpower and therefore really defined what the next several decades would look like. How old were you when the wall came down, Ms. Travinsky? Very, very young. Clay and I both remember watching it on television. It was astounding. It happened during your lifetime, barely. I was, I was one. Wow. But uh, what a moment. And here's the interesting thing as we go to our first break. Historians and many others thought this, this ends it. Cold War's over. The West won. Due process and liberal democracies are the order of things. Communism is going to collapse. That this, and one historian famously said, is the end of history. That the liberal world order will now dominate the future of this planet. And my oh my, were we brought up short on that one within a few years. Yes, history has a way of um, coming back and kicking us in the tush. And we are currently living a little bit of a, uh, a, a renewal of the Cold War, if you will. At this point, we need to take a break from the conversation, but we will return in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, a very fun, spirited, and interesting conversation with our special guest, Lindsay Travinsky, and of course, the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. And we are talking about uh, their interpretation of the 10 most important historical events prompted by a letter from a listener. And, you know, I, I should say again, too, that it, this is a great way to start 2023. And I, um, I I know you both would join me in wishing all of our listeners a very happy new year and a, and a great year to come. Absolutely. Let me, let me start here. First of all, I have a little piece of the wall in my living room on display. Now, maybe it's a wall from Brookings, South Dakota, but I did buy it as a commemorative piece of the Berlin Wall because it's that important. And I remember going to the museum in Washington, D.C. before it collapsed, one of the great museums in the country. Unfortunately, it's no longer, but they have a huge piece of the wall, and you can't you can't look at it without being deeply moved by what it represented and, and how it was overcome. In 1985, I don't think there would be many people alive on Earth who would have said the wall would come down in their lifetime, and it did. So I want to just quickly get two on and off the table. July 4, 1776, um, again, shame on you, Lindsay, but I think that that day... No, will... what, wait, wait a minute. What is that so about? Cliche. Shame on you. Oh, come what on. That's one of, that'll be, when history is written a million years from now, that, that will be the pivotal date of human liberty. That. Let me ask you this follow-up question. Follow-up question. Do you think that there is a single high school student in the United States who doesn't learn that date? Well, I didn't realize you were only going to go to the obscure. Oh, please. But you were just going to show off. The <laughs> 14th Amendment is hardly an obscure date. Anyway, right. I was trying to come up with some alternatives. Anyway, please continue. Okay, yes, July 4th table, is very I, important. I believe that is the pivotal date. That's the line of demarcation between the old world and the new. But but to add to that, and this, I want Lindsay's opinion of this, the Battle of New Orleans. And I, I mentioned it because... It was, in a way, the Second War of National Independence. It came out as a kind of a draw, but late in the game, Andrew Jackson won this stunning victory in New Orleans. And most historians, and I wonder how you feel about this, Lindsay, say this was sort of the end of the great tension between the two countries and the beginning of what we now like to call the special relationship. And so I do believe that that it can honestly be called the Second War of National Independence and that Britain and the United States do have a special relationship more hyped than real, I think. But Britain had to let us go. We haven't really been in a great struggle with them since. I agree with that. And I agree that the War of 1812 is definitely sort of a second war of independence. It's a bookend. It's a it's a part two. And it did end the remaining tensions. There were moments when it seemed as though there might be tension again, especially during the Civil, Civil war, war. But never ended up coming to fruition. I guess this is the one I think on your list that surprises me the most because the war was technically already over when the battle was fought. The treaty was signed, the, you know, all the details were sort of in place. What makes the battle so special for Americans at the time is that it allowed them to feel like the war had been won as opposed to really just fought to a draw. So it was the epitome of a symbolic victory if sort of rather pointless in actual practice. I agree with you 100%, but also it probably led to the presidency of Andrew Jackson, and that in itself is a pivotal moment in our history. That is true. That is a very good point. I don't think he would have been, he would not have been president if if not for that that victory, and he certainly was a huge turning point both in the presidency and in U.S. history. 
Okay, so building off of Jackson, what shall I do next? Um, let's go a little bit back. Feels like Jeopardy, kind of now, doesn't it? <laughs> it does <laughs> feel like Jeopardy. Uh, New York Times for a hundred. <laughs> um, what I would do is just before Jackson, uh, the Monroe Doctrine. I think the Monroe Doctrine is so. First of all, it should be called the John Quincy Adams Doctrine. More the Jefferson Doctrine, but go ahead. <laughs> She did um, stick out her tongue, ladies and gentlemen. I did. Um, it's definitely the John Quincy Adams doctrine. And um, the reason I think that it is so remarkable is because this is the moment where the United States declares that it, if not yet, it will be an empire. And the Western Hemisphere is going to be its sphere of influence and the age of great European colonization in the West is over. Now, in practice, that doesn't happen for a little bit, but this is when the United States is planting this, planting its flag in the sand. And the various corollaries, when it was maybe perhaps actually enforced, very much build off of this moment. And, and TR, Theodore Roosevelt, 1905, the Roosevelt Corollary says, oh, let's clarify this. If we want Europeans to stay out of the Western Hemisphere, I guess we'll have to police it ourselves from time to time when those scamps below our border uh, don't pay their bills or um, do things that are uh, not in decorum with our principles or or with the rule of law. And so this then doubles the empire. Yeah, that actually builds into one of my other ones, which is the Panama Canal. And the Panama Canal is very much the physical embodiment of Roosevelt's statement. He forces it. It is a creation of American imperialism. It is a remarkable feat of engineering and changes commerce for the 20th century. It is the definition of American force and might. And high-handedness. And high-handedness. And is, I think, really does change both the United States' relationship to Latin American nations it changes the United States' relationship to global trade, and it changes the United States' position on the world stage. And Jefferson, by the way, had um, called for it. Uh, many people did uh, long before the French uh, began to create it. I've been through it twice, um, once each direction, and I'll tell you, uh, it's an amazing thing. Um, when you, you start in, and at a certain point you see the other ocean, and you can't believe that they're that close, and it's it's an extraordinary thing, uh, but it certainly um, bears a lot of um, signature of Theodore Roosevelt, and he was extremely high-handed in the way that he handled this. In fact, when he explained it to his cabinet, um, Philander Knox said, "It's a very great thing you've done. I wouldn't I wouldn't damage it at all with any hint of legality." <laughs> well said. <laughs> so, I actually, Clay, I think you're up. Yes. What's your next point? Uh, let me let me go to Nagasaki. So, you know, I, I've done a lot of work on on J. Robert Oppenheimer. He's an extraordinary, tragic figure in American history. He he, he was the director of the Manhattan Project at Los Alamos. He's a genius of a certain sort, but also truly a tragic figure in the Aristotelian sense. And the bomb worked the first time. Um, on July 16, 1945, at Alamogordo. It's amazing that it worked. And then it was detonated twice in war, once uh, at Hiroshima in, on August 6, 1945, and then in Nagasaki. And I, I choose Nagasaki, uh, August 9th, because I, I think that 
I think that Nagasaki is very hard to justify. Hiroshima, less so. But the Japanese really didn't even know what had happened three days after Hiroshima. They hadn't had time to assimilate the utter uh, devastation of this thing. We rushed it forward because there was going to be bad weather uh, over the Japanese islands. Um, we should have said after Hiroshima, we can continue to do this. We'll give you a couple of weeks to think about this. The second bomb was, was rushed forward partly because of weather, but also they wanted to test it because it was a different explosive mechanism from the Hiroshima bomb. And I do think, and I say this carefully, I think that this was an unjustified uh, event. And so I know a lot of veterans and families of veterans would be appalled by that. But if it had been two weeks later, I would sleep much better at night about that incident in American history. Well, speaking of incidents that make it difficult to sleep, um, I picked the Colfax massacre of 1873. When we talk about January 6th, a lot of the discussion is about how it was the first insurrection. And that's true on a federal level. It was the first insurrection. But this was not the first time in American history that a duly elected, democratically elected government had been overthrown. And uh, in Colfax in 1873, this is when Reconstruction was still in force and uh, African-Americans did indeed have suffrage. In Colfax, it was a predominantly black town. Where's Colfax? Colfax is in Louisiana. Um, this massacre happened on Easter Sunday, April 13th, 1873. It was a particularly unique, unique case after the Civil War because there were uh, wealthy, educated, successful African-American businessmen. There had been a, a significant Creole population, especially in New Orleans. So there was a tradition of uh, Black uh, business ownership, Black leadership, Black education. Uh, Colfax, as I said, was a predominantly Black town, and it had elected Black representatives to serve the, the population. And uh, between an estimated 62 and, and 153 Black men were killed by members of the Ku Klux Klan, including the individuals that had been elected to serve the town. And a white, uh, a white leadership was installed in its place. And so this is an example of when citizens used their vote. The, the vote itself was not contested. And uh, the Ku Klux Klan said, that's basically not acceptable to us, removed those representatives and put in place through force their own. I think this part of Reconstruction is often not told. Just quickly, for those who may not remember, in, in a couple of sentences, unfair though this question is, tell us what Reconstruction was. Reconstruction was the effort after the Civil War to put back together an operating society in the South that had been destroyed both ecologically, but also in terms of infrastructure and economy and government through the Civil War fighting. It was a combination of legislation, like voting rights acts, um, amendments. Occupation. New, uh, new occupations. So there were, there were bills that were passed that helped to employ and teach and educate uh, recently enfranchised uh, or recently emancipated African-Americans. There were efforts to uh, redistribute some land and property to help these individuals 
support themselves in the South because it was primarily an agricultural society. Um, so it was really an attempt to put back together the society and figure out how to bring the states back into the Union. And to bring some sort of racial justice to protect the rights of freed African-Americans in the South that had been broken by the war. Absolutely. So uh, suffrage and land ownership and business ownership and education and schools, things like the Freedmen's Bureau, were all created and provided to try and rebuild the society in a more equitable manner. And for a period of time, and this is the part of the story that's often not told, for a period of time, it works. There was at least a decade, maybe, of time when African-Americans did own businesses, did vote, did serve in government, did serve in local leadership. And it was only through violence and force and intimidation that those efforts were eventually destroyed. Sad, a sad moment in American history because Reconstruction wasn't occupation by Northern armies. It wasn't imposition on the broken South, but it was an attempt to say, we can't just go back to the status quo antebellum it's a new world now. We have to make sure that the South respects the implications of the Civil War and respects the emancipation of Black people. And the United States, for many different reasons, a very complicated story, essentially lost interest and pulled back, and we know what followed. Well, that leads that leads to Dred Scott and Plessy versus Ferguson. And I mention them because they're such blots on the history of the court system. So Dred Scott, 1857, uh, basically says before the war that there are no rights that a black person has that the Constitution is bound to respect, which actually is good originalism. If that's your view, what the founding fathers intended, it's probably good originalism for most of the people who were in Philadelphia in 1787, but it was, of course, an appalling decision that's widely regarded as the worst of all of the bad decisions that the Supreme Court has ever made. And then uh, Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896 comes at the other end of Reconstruction when the court says, well, we don't have to integrate American society. We'll just have separate but equal facilities, separate schools, separate bus stations, separate bathrooms, um, separate public entrances to public buildings, that as long as there is some sort of illusion of separate but equal, that doesn't violate the Constitution of the United States. And that wasn't overturned until uh, Brown v. Board of Education in the 1950s. So these are blots. I said earlier the Supreme Court sometimes is the only thing that stands up for justice in a country that can't do it politically. Here are occasions where it was part of the conspiracy to hold black people down. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I think the Supreme Court is so interesting because, and I was going to make that that exact same point, that the Supreme Court sometimes is the engine through which really essential change happens. And Brown versus Board of Education was one of the ones that sort of was on my almost made it list. Um, and, and that's a great example of that happening, but is so often actually behind the, the, the arc of social justice and behind the push for societal change. And those sort of ebbs and flows really change depending on who who is on the court, which, I mean, makes sense when you only have anywhere from, you know, six to 11 to eight to nine people. Um, now nine. Now nine. But I think should also sort of is worth thinking about those nine people have so much impact 
and is is I think something for us to consider both how carefully we pick those nine people and is it right for nine people to have such huge societal impact for often decades to come. Lindsay, that sort of leads to your point number seven, the civil rights movement and particularly the Selma to Montgomery March in 1965. It does. So after the uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, a separate but equal decision, um, um, uh, leads into after, after the Plessy versus Ferguson decision, there there were a series of decades of very very intense Jim Crow laws, especially in the South. There was there was intense segregation in the North, and to be sure, racism. But the structural imposition of a racial tier society in the South was particularly onerous, and the civil rights movement, which I think really began after World War II, when a generation of Black veterans had served with incredible valor and bravery, came home after defending freedom abroad and found that they really did not have that same freedom at home. And that's what really kind of sparked this next round of civil rights agitation and movement and protests. And I picked the Selma to Montgomery March of 1965 out of many, many, many options. But what I think is so powerful about that moment is when it was televised. So it demonstrated the power of technology to change minds, to persuade, to push forward a movement. Um, and it also demonstrates the incredible strategy and tactics and discipline of the movement. There's a book out by Thomas Ricks on the civil rights movement, and it looks into basically how the leaders of the movement employed military strategies and training tactics to get themselves ready. And so it was all about, no matter the violence you faced, you did not respond. You did not engage violently. You did, it, and it was putting yourself in, in the line of fire intentionally. And that sort of bravery is, I think, really hard to comprehend. And so two things quickly. One is, my is Thomas Rick's prolific, but secondly, um, the power of television. I mean, the country knew sort of what was going on down there, but seeing the hoses, the dogs, the vicious whites um, attacking and, and the, the, the arrogance and, and deep, deep, obvious racism in their faces, um, it touched this country deeply and it led to some change that would not have occurred if these were only newspaper accounts. Very good. We need to take a short break. We'll return to this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Welcome to 2023. We're with Lindsay Chervinsky, our extraordinary correspondent. And we're talking about 10 really pivotal moments in American history, 20 really, because we didn't particularly overlap. And as you said, Lindsay, you had some sort of uh, honorable mentions, others that didn't quite make the list. I just want to give you one of mine, uh, the invention of the Ginsu knife in 1978. I think maybe certainly ranks with with almost anything in yeah, human that, history. That was on your honorable mention list. I yeah, the Ginsu that was, knife. It, cuts, uh, it, cut, it can cut through a chassis of a yeah, car and then a perfect tomato. Also on that list was the invention of the Ziploc bag. I do so. think the Ziploc bag is maybe, <laughs> I mean, where it ranks over penicillin, I would say. Yeah. Before we took our break, Clay, you made mention of uh, television, mm-hmm. uh, the broadcasting of the civil rights movement. And I was kind of looking at you guys' list, and you did mention space travel and the Internet. But beyond that, there were not a lot of, uh, not a lot of attention given to in- inventions in America. You know, the, the Wright brothers, um, uh, electricity and the development of providing it to the masses and and then the development of communications and, and television and things like the discovery of oil and the adoption of fossil fuels by the, the public in automobiles. So you kind of you kind of both of historians, but you sort of ignored some of these inventions, these American inventions. What you see depends upon the lens you put on. If we did a program on inventions, it would be very different. We're going back to Bridget in Grinnell, Iowa, and she's talking about 10 things that high school students should know. So I'll, I'll just interject that and, and let you move on. I'm not even sure who's up. I, I think I, Lindsay's up. No, I think, Clay, I think you're up. But I, I do want to say that I think two of yours actually have a lot. I mean, you're right. We we did not do, we were very bad historians of science and technology. Um, and given that there is a Smithsonian dedicated to those things, perhaps that was an oversight. However, two of yours, both the Pentagon Papers and the tapes are very much a product of technology and communication revolution, whether it be through newspapers or the speed of transmission of information. So maybe those would be, or even the internet would be good places to start next. Well, let me start with the, the Richard Nixon turning over the tape. So as everybody knows, um, called you weren't even born yet, Lindsay, but that's fine. <laughs> as everybody knows that Richard Nixon kept White House tapes as some of his predecessors had done. Um, he was going to use the tapes for two reasons, partly to write his memoirs, but also uh, to make sure that Henry Kissinger didn't steal all the glory of those years. And uh, we discovered that there were tapes, and uh, they were very um, revealing of the crimes of the Nixon administration, and he fought as hard as a human being can fight to keep them from becoming part of the public record. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court voted eight to one that uh, that Nixon must return uh, the tapes, and he complied. And that's the that's the point, Lindsay. Nixon could have burned the tapes. He could have said, "No, um, I'm not doing it. Nothing can make me do it." Uh, he could have been defiant, but he was sufficiently committed to the constitutional norms of a free society that he turned them over when the moment came. And the smoking gun tape from June 23rd, 19. 19- uh, 72 um, made it impossible for him to continue being the president of the United States. And when you think of what's happened recently, and I won't go into any specifics, but this country, Lindsay, depends upon people voluntarily accepting the norms of what happens in a civil society. And we've learned to our cost 
how fragile those norms are. Very true. And an excellent selection. I have on my list January 6, 2021, which I think is the epitome of the breaking of those norms. And while I think this topic feels very relevant to us and it feels very partisan and very political, but I think that when the history books are written about this century, it will be a pivotal and historic moment that everyone will look back on as a shattering point. When the norms were rejected, when centuries of tradition were ignored, and that's a a very tragic moment. It's the beginning of 2023, Lindsay, but when you look back to the 2022 midterm elections, I think you will agree that they give you some capacity of relief that, you know, what January 6th represented might have been the beginning of much worse and may still be, but the 2022 midterm elections seem to suggest that the American people were pulling back to reject that sort of extra constitutional answer to our politics. Yeah, absolutely. The elections to me were an overwhelming vote in favor of moderation, in favor of fair elections, in favor of candidates who respected the sanctity of elections. And that is good reason for hope. I think that's a very positive thing. Clay, what, what's 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 your next choice? Well, let me go to... The 10th on my list, and again, these are in no particular order, 1960, the Food and Drug Administration approves the birth control pill. You know, when you think of the rights of women, which are a little clouded as we go into the year 2023, thanks to the Supreme Court's uh, infamous decision last year, uh, it feels like there's been a little retrograde in the rights of women, but again, pivotal birth control pills, giving women the capacity to avoid pregnancy and still have an active sex life uh, is an extremely important moment in the history of civilization. Uh, There are people that lament it, but uh, I certainly don't. I think that uh, allowing a woman to have, uh, to to erect a wall between her, her basic biology and her destiny in other respects in a civilization is absolutely one of the great breakthrough moments, and it came again by technology. It's impossible to remember, I think, a pre-birth control world. But, but Lindsay, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm an old white man talking about this. Surely you agreed that this was one of the great moments. I do, and I, I think it's, it's one of the great moments for so many reasons. But, you know, if you read stories about, there, there are so many of them, it's hard to even pick out, but prior to the widespread availability of birth control. If women got married in their early 20s, theoretically, they could have children for 20 years. And the best efforts to family plan, let's say she's, let's say a woman was married, she had no interest in having a, you know, sexual relationship outside of that marriage. Um, and she already had five children and wanted to limit it at five children. And the, the ability to do that and not be abstinent was was pretty minimal. Uh, best efforts were were quite <laughs> faulty and didn't really work. And so, a many women died young because repeated childbirth breaks down your body. Martha um, and Jefferson very, among them. Among them, it was very dangerous um, if something happened. 
but also it meant that women were limited in the other things that they could do. So basically that took half of the population and limited their ability to contribute to literature, to invention, to science, to medicine, to theory, to politics, you name it. And so by allowing women to make the choice about when they want to be pregnant, it also allows them to participate fully in society, which is good for society. It's good for the progress of man and the progress of humankind. And so I think it, it's both a such a humane way, more humane way to live and limits the loss of life, but also makes the opportunities endless for what people can achieve. Yeah, 1960 birth control. Just one last comment about this. Uh, given what Clarence Thomas uh, said in his um, concurrence with the Dobbs decision in 2022, it's by no means absolutely certain that birth control will continue to be freely available to women in this country. We are getting dangerously close to making it through this list, so I'm going to open it up to the two of you and uh, get your points in, please. Well, let me go to the Internet. I first became aware of the Internet around 1999 or 2000, but it's been around. It started in the Defense Department. It was for coordination of, of uh, Defense Department activities and um, international relations. Uh, now, I think most people would be hard-pressed to think of how they could live without it. Uh, but, you know, we talk about the Gutenberg Revolution in the 15th century. I think this is a much bigger revolution than the Gutenberg Revolution um, we can't even begin, I think, as historians, Lindsay, to to sort and chart what this is going to have meant for humanity. But it is uh, incalculably large, wouldn't you say? It is. And we're only really, I think, beginning to understand the ramifications, both for good and for ill. Any Any sort of innovation comes with a cost as well as opportunity. And the Internet, of course, is, is no exception. And so I think we're just beginning to really understand its potential for revolution, its potential for democratizing information, and also its potential for ill and for harm. So, David, the Pentagon Papers, you remember this, uh, 1971. Actually, I do. I was, I was, I was living in D.C. right around that period. Had no idea what was going. It must on. have been extraordinary to be there when all of this fell out. So the uh, the the government, uh, led by Robert McNamara, um, commissioned a massive study of how we got into the quagmire of Vietnam. Uh, a man named Daniel Ellsberg uh, leaked that material to the press. He uh, surreptitiously photocopied this immense 10,000-page document, released it to the New York Times and other newspapers. The Times began to publish it. The Nixon administration sought to um, prevent the publication. Uh, even though Nixon came off smelling pretty good. Um, he wasn't really even mentioned in the Pentagon Papers. It was all the fault of Eisenhower, Kennedy, and particularly Johnson. Uh, but the Supreme Court sat in judgment of this and said, no, you can't have prior restraint. Uh, that there, and what this means, Lindsay, is that the court, again, in one of its great moments, affirmed that the First Amendment really matters, and it is not an absolute, but it is very nearly an absolute. And, you know, the case can be made that the government was right, that these were dangerous secrets that, that could really compromise America. But the court said, no, the, the people's right to have access to the most critical information about their destiny is so important that we mustn't ever give prior restraint 
on what can be published. And, and again, that's not an absolute, but it is very nearly so. And it led to Watergate, by the way. Nixon freaked out, even though he wasn't in it. Uh, and he created the plumber's unit to prevent leaks of this sort. He went after Ellsberg, and actually uh, he, um, uh, he, he, he commanded the break-in of Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office in Los Angeles. And this was one of the indictments of Richard Nixon when his impeachment was being considered in the House of Representatives. So this is absolutely monumental. And, and Lindsay, I think you will agree that it's one of the First Amendment's greatest moments. It is. And I think that that ties so nicely into a couple, I think my last, well, two of my three last ones, which are the creation of the Constitution, the Constitutional Convention. And I picked the particular letter that I did because it's as Washington was leaving. And I think I've mentioned this on a previous episode, but it's as Washington was leaving the Constitutional Convention. And he said, Basically, it was nearly impossible to bring together all of these interests and all of these concerns. We did the best that we could, a.k.a. this was a series of compromises to get this thing agreed to. And it is up to future generations to amend it accordingly. And I, I think that this message is so important because our view of the Constitution as this holy, sacred document has completely clouded the initial intent, which is that it was supposed to be a way to get the nation started. And as future generations came up with new solutions to problems that the older generation had punted on, like slavery and the Civil War eventually addressed that issue and the 14th Amendment attempted to come up with a new solution to these problems, then they were supposed to change it. They were supposed to improve it. And it was supposed to be something that continued to grow with the nation. And so the First Amendment should continue to grow and be expansive as it was in this case, because the founders were fallible, they were often flawed, but they were brilliant enough to know that they did not have all the answers and they could not possibly anticipate everything that was coming down the road. And they hoped that future generations would step up and try and amend what they had created or come up with something new. And I think that is really the legacy of those two moments. I love that you pointed to that letter and not just to the uh, the convention itself. And, you know, and, and it points back to your uh, earlier and such important work on George Washington that you know, he had that capacity, didn't he, to do the right, wise thing in his modest and kind of understated way at the key moments of his lifetime. He did. And I will say on one of the things that on, was on my list that I, I decided to cut out was the farewell address. And for, for two reasons. One, I mean, the farewell address itself, the idea of stepping back from power was really quite revolutionary at the time. But his understanding that he needed to be around and alive for that transition, for the entire experiment to succeed, was such a prescient and extraordinary thought for someone to have. So we're about out of time, Lindsay, but there's one on your list we didn't touch on that we must, and that's September 11th, 2001. Yeah, this moment, I think, is the one of the defining moments and will be one of the defining moments for the 21st century, despite the fact that it occurred in the very first year. And that is because, one, of course, it was this incredible loss of life. It was a very traumatic moment. I think it was one of the last moments that the United States has been truly united, which is a remarkable and, and kind of sad statement, but it also defined the next 20 years because it kickstarted the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq through a series of 
misguided and perhaps unintentional mistakes and sometimes intentional mistakes. And so I think that it completely changed America's conception of itself. It changed the United States role in the world and it shattered a lot of people's ideas about security and the global community. Lindsay, thanks so much for being with us this week. We're out of time. Clay, we must do this again, and I'll let you say goodbye. We will. I want to just do a couple things. First of all, I'm so sorry I didn't get to make the case for the Ziploc bag, but that we'll just leave that for another time. I also want to say, Lindsay, that you know I've been I reread Frederick Douglass's narrative this week, and I would say this to anyone who doesn't get the 1619 Project or the problem of race in American history, if you will just read Frederick Douglass's narrative you will never look at our history in the same way. It's one of the most important documents in the history of this country. Neil Armstrong on the moon, July 21st. I want to just say about that, that the day earlier when they landed on the moon, Buzz Aldrin took communion on the moon. Amazing, mind-blowing that he took Christian communion on the moon the first thing he did after the lunar module landed. So all this and more, we'll talk about our secondary lists. I've got Abigail Adams on it. I've got the massacre at Wounded Knee, Thoreau going to the woods in 1845. Lindsay, I know your list is long too. It's in Bridget, you did us a favor, but also a curse because now I'm making lists all day long. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to this, but it is such a pleasure. And I really, what I love most about this is how differently Lindsay and I look at the world, but with great harmony and complementarity. It really, I mean, I've learned from this conversation. So we'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.